Climate 2020 is a new podcast that makes climate change the top issue of the 2020 presidential election. Listen as researchers, activists, and journalists like MSNBC's Chris Hayes explain where your favorite candidate stands on climate and which proposals make the most sense. Hear thought-provoking conversations about how we can solve our world's greatest crisis. Subscribe now in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And learn more at climate2020podcast.com. Welcome back to your primary playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman For those joining us for the first time, this podcast is your definitive guide to the 2020 presidential primary. Because if you're like me, looking at the field of 2020 candidates, it can be daunting. Even after 15 years of working in democratic politics, I have questions around what exactly each candidate is proposing. To better understand the issues, I've turned to the women who know them best. Today, we're going to talk about what has become one of the leading issues for voters across the country, climate change. Public opinion has been changing rapidly on the issue. Over the past three years, public belief in climate change has jumped 10 points. And last year, 69% of Americans reported being worried about climate change's effects. The issue has also become a litmus test for young voters. And the science on the issue makes it crystal clear that there is cause for concern. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that the world is on track to exceed our carbon budget in only 12 years. But it still feels like there's nothing being done. Maybe that's why more people disagree with Trump's treatment of climate change than any other issue. So what has Trump done? One of the very first things that Trump did as president was to pull the U.S. out of the International Paris Climate Agreement that sets the country's climate emission goals. Trump has stuck to his campaign line of calling climate change, quote, a hoax. And his policies have reflected that. His administration's policies have been devastating for the environment, fueled by his appointment of oil industry execs and lobbyists to key cabinet positions. In just the past month, his EPA has moved to repeal the Obama-era clean water protections and deregulate greenhouse gas emissions such as methane. So that brings us to 2020. All of the candidates on the Democratic side support action on climate change, but their proposals differ. Ideas span from the Green New Deal to platforms focused on cutting emissions and instituting a green service court. Some of the most comprehensive proposals addressing climate change came from Washington Governor Jay Inslee. Governor Inslee has since dropped out of the primary, but he made climate change the centerpiece of his campaign and really pushed the conversation forward. Now, many other candidates are adopting pieces of his plan. To learn more about where the candidates stand, I spoke with Tiernan Sittenfeld. Tiernan Sittenfeld is the Senior Vice President for Government Affairs at the League of Conservation Voters. She directs LCV's policy and lobbying efforts on a range of issues, including climate change, energy, air, water, and lands. She oversees LCV's legislative accountability campaigns and the National Environmental Scorecard. She also leads LCV's Action Fund coordinated team. She's a graduate of Dartmouth College and lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and two sons. Welcome, Tiernan. Thanks for having me. Great to be here, Emily. So it feels like public opinion is rapidly changing on climate change. Over the past three years, the percentage of Americans who believe in human-caused climate change and worry about it has drastically increased. So how do you think that's impacting the political parties? You're right. The support for climate action is off the charts right now. 
And I would say historically, climate change and the climate crisis, climate impacts have not gotten the attention that they've deserved on the campaign trail. I think perhaps um, the most disturbing example of this is that in the 2016 general election, there was literally not one question on climate change asked by the moderators during the debates between Trump and Hillary. Wow. I mean, I, I don't remember it being like climate change being featured in the election, but I didn't realize it was that and that it was totally out. It's shameful. And I think clearly the elections were not particularly substantive or driven by issues. They were driven by, you know, one Trump scandal and then another. And then to the extent that there was discussion of issues, climate change was not high on the list. So clearly that didn't give Trump a mandate. Voters did not give him a mandate to run roughshod and roll back both our basic environmental protections, you know, things like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, nor did it give him a mandate to go after common sense, really popular protections that the Obama administration advanced. But that said, that was a real low point. And Thank goodness we are making significant progress because the stakes for the climate have never been higher. I mean, people obviously are experiencing devastating impacts on a daily basis from stronger storms and hurricanes, from wildfires, from droughts, from flooding. Um, so we have got to act on climate. But finally, we are seeing the the public, uh, I think, has woken up in a major way. That started to change in the 2018 elections where we saw candidates running talking about climate change, calling out their opponents for being climate deniers, running ads on clean energy and climate solutions. And they won overwhelmingly. So now we have a bunch of champions in the U.S. House who are waking up every day thinking, what are they going to do to combat the climate crisis? And we've then, since the elections, seen not just that the House has had about 50 hearings across committees on climate change, both climate impacts and climate solutions. The House made H.R. 9, the Climate Action Now Act, one of their bills of honor that they already voted on with all the Democrats supporting. We did get three Republicans, so that's a little progress. Um, so we've seen a lot of progress in terms of what's happened in the House. We've also seen the polls are really off the charts. So there was just, I think, the most recent or one of the more recent polls. It seems like there's a new one coming out every day saying climate change is a top-tier priority for voters. It's, that's particularly the case for Democratic primary voters or for Democrats. There was a Quinnipiac poll a couple of weeks ago that 84% of Democrats consider climate change to be an emergency, like literally an emergency. But that's across party lines. It's like 56% across you know Democrat, Independent, Republican. So clearly a majority of voters are very concerned about the climate crisis and absolutely more likely to support candidates and elected officials who they know are going to lead the way toward a clean energy economy. And I think part of this is, you know, we're seeing last last fall, there were a couple of different bombshell reports that came out, the International Panel on Climate Change that found that we had like less than 12 years to stave off utter catastrophe, that we really have to significantly cut our carbon emissions and we need to do it ASAP. And then a month or two after that, the Trump administration actually tried to bury on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, their national, their own national climate assessment, which again found that climate impacts are already devastating today, that this is not some distant threat. But then also they found that the GDP could take a 10 percent hit by the end of the century. So this is the consequences of climate change are clearly massive and devastating. And people are recognizing that. So it's it is encouraging 
to see that 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 this issue is getting the attention that it deserves from voters, from elected officials, and especially on the on the presidential campaign trail. It does feel different. And I feel like, you know, even just anecdotally in my own life, like I hear people talking about climate as a high priority. But I do want to challenge this a little bit and get your reaction to it, that Washington Governor Jay Inslee ran for president basically on a climate platform. He centered it in his campaign in a pretty unprecedented way. I mean, everybody knows Inslee was the climate candidate, but then he was among the earlier to drop out. So do you think that there are implications for the larger field and prioritization of climate by the fact that he did center it and then dropped out pretty quickly? Good question. I'm, I'm going to have to challenge you right back, I think. So, I mean, first of all, we give huge kudos to Governor Inslee for running a campaign that was centered on addressing the climate crisis. He's been a longtime champion when he was in the Congress uh, and then as governor of Washington state. And I think he accomplished a tremendous amount. I mean, he truly set the bar so high in terms of what anyone who is serious about running for president needs to do when it comes to combating climate change. And he put out, I think it's like 200 pages worth of really ambitious specific, concrete plans about how to transition once and for all to a 100% clean energy economy. And I think if you look at, first of all, I mean, there's 25 people running. So clearly it's, you know, it's a little, it's hard to break through. I think especially there are a number of sort of men who aren't that young anymore, you know, older, oldish white men who, you know, hard to differentiate some of them. I love a categorization of men who aren't that young anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that in terms of really showing what it is going to take to tackle this crisis, to demonstrating what are the opportunities, what are, you know, how can we really be ambitious, throw everything we can at this that's sort of on the scale of the problem. And the fact that we have Elizabeth Warren, who very quickly adopted so much of his climate plan. Many other candidates have referenced him, the number of accolades that he got from the candidates. So I think it he really, again, he he set the bar high. His plans were the gold standard. Uh, and I think the fact that there is so much energy, so much attention, so much focus on climate change on the presidential campaign trail is something that he should feel proud of. And I think it's also important to note that he he has a very important job right now as the governor of Washington state, where he has led on so many issues and really stood up to Trump in all kinds of important ways. And we're delighted that he's running for reelection because we could use his leadership as a governor for many years to come. So climate change impacts many other issues. It is definitely not a siloed issue. I mean, it impacts issues like immigration. Right. Um, economic justice, health, and even national security. So from your perspective, are any of the candidates who are still in the field looking at this issue comprehensively enough? That's a really good question. And I would say almost to a a person, and especially for the, the sort of top polling candidates, they have all put out climate plans. So the fact that we're still 14 months out from the general election and we have all of the top tier candidates having released strong, comprehensive, ambitious climate plans like that in and of itself just speaks volumes to what a better place we're in. And again, not a moment too soon, because clearly the stakes have never been higher for our planet, for our future, for our ability to live on it. And so I think what you're saying about climate sort of touching everything is really important. And so it's both really encouraging that we've seen candidates put out comprehensive climate plans, but also that 
a number of them have put out have talked about climate change and focus on climate change in the context of other plans. So, for example, when Julian Castro put out a plan on affordable housing, he focused on climate change and sustainability and efficiency in these affordable homes. Or when Elizabeth Warren put out, of course, she has, she's got a plan for everything. Uh, so when she put out her plan on manufacturing, she really focused on green manufacturing and the opportunities to combat the climate crisis and transition to clean energy through manufacturing. Or when Cory Booker um, first put out, he has, again, all these people have put out climate plans, but they put out other plans. So he had first put out an environmental justice plan. Uh, but he also, when he's talked about, put out an immigration plan talking about climate refugees and really making the connection with the crisis. So I think it is clear that climate change touches everything. And whether the candidates are talking about the economy or they're talking about national security or they're talking about public health or they're talking about racial justice, really, we can't be talking about any of these issues without talking about climate impacts and climate solutions. And that's especially the case when we think about the frontline communities, the communities of color that have been hit first and worst, both by the climate crisis, by climate impacts, as we saw you know, with Dorian, um, this, this devastating hurricane that ruined people's lives. Um, and then there's you know, others who are able to just get on their very expensive plane and like fly away. Um, so it is so important that these plans really be centered on racial justice and equity. And we need to ensure that these solutions are going to really address the disproportionate impacts that they have felt over so many decades. And so did you expect to see candidate platforms to be this intersectional covering climate change and impacts in all their different policy areas? Is it something you've seen coming? Like how big is the departure of the fact that so many candidates that you mentioned um, have climate and the impacts in their different policy proposals? How different is that from even four years ago? Well, I would say it's very different in that, I mean, of course, we saw in the Democratic primary, the candidates were talking about climate change, did put out plans on clean energy, but they were not, they weren't nearly this comprehensive. I mean, I think, I don't know if I would say it's exactly a silver lining, but one, you know, in the Trump era, I think it's, in the progressive world, we have all realized like we rise and fall together and it's, we've been working in a much more intersectional way which is why, for example, the League of Conservation Voters, you know, in partnership with a couple of other environmental groups like NRDC and the Sierra Club, came out in opposition to the repeal of Obamacare against Trump care, because obviously there's a hugely important connection between access to good, affordable health care and public health, things like you know, asthma and respiratory issues. Or we've, of course, been very focused on standing with dreamers. We have uh, called out the abhorrent attacks that Trump has made as he tries to divide us in so many really just insidious ways. So uh, I think what we're seeing from the candidates is a reflection of that. And I think it also, it, you know, it speaks to the fact that we do need to transform our economy, which for too long has run on dirty, polluting fossil fuels that, of course, are good um, for the CEOs of those companies and for the bottom line, but bad for anyone who wants to breathe clean air drink clean water, enjoy pristine public lands, 
Of course, we should also talk about the connection with you know, the ability to participate equitably in our democracy. But I think it's it's just clear that all of these solutions, a healthy economy and a healthy planet, go hand in hand. And this is this is not new. Historically, environmental issues have enjoyed broad bipartisan support. So our bedrock environmental laws like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, I could go on. You know, they were all passed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities in Congress in the 70s for the most part, and then signed into law, most of them by a Republican president, Richard Nixon. So we've seen with Citizens United, with the Koch brothers, that unfortunately Republicans have gotten further and further away from supporting environmental protections. And obviously Trump has just taken them in even more extreme radical direction. But you did mention companies and corporations. And interestingly, under the Trump administration, many industries and corporations actually want to be better on climate than the administration wants them to be. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. Like take the car companies, for example, who clearly, I mean, we had several car companies basically cutting a deal with California to be able to continue making more efficient cars. I mean, of course, we would like cars to be as efficient as they possibly can because the transportation sector um, is the biggest source of carbon emissions in this country. And obviously, and that gets, you know, that relates to when Elizabeth Warren had a great retort during the CNN climate town hall, which of course, it's really exciting that there was a CNN climate town hall that they devoted seven hours of primetime TV to talking with individual kids about the climate crisis. Like that's hugely exciting. We give huge kudos to CNN. I will say there was like too much of a focus. I don't know how much of it you saw. I'm not going to ask because seven hours is a long time. But there was too much of a focus in the questions about personal sacrifice. And are people going to give up their cheeseburger? Are people going to stop using straws? And Elizabeth Warren said, come on, you know, give me a break. The more time that we're spending talking about straws, talking about light bulbs, talking about cheeseburgers, like that's exactly where the fossil fuel industry wants us. Rather than talking about... How do we shut down dirty coal-burning power plants? How do we make cars and trucks go further on a gallon of gas? Common sense solutions, that's where we need to focus our efforts. You had mentioned Hurricane Dorian. Extreme weather is often a way that a lot of people come to the issue of climate change, that how it, it really enters their, their consciousness. Either experiencing the extreme weather themselves. I don't think there's anyone in this country that hasn't experienced some version of extreme weather. And then also following the news and seeing other people having to leave their homes, having their communities destroyed because of more and more extreme weather. An example of where extreme weather really intersects, particularly like with immigration, like with Hurricanes Maria and Hurricane Dorian, the Trump administration said they won't even give protected status to the Bahamians and others. Some of the candidates you mentioned, like Booker and also like Castro, have even suggested creating a new class of refugees for people fleeing from climate change. So do you think that this is the right way for us to be addressing this problem? Like, do you think that any of the candidates are addressing extreme weather in their platform in a way that you find either acceptable or really stand out? One of the things that we have been looking at is, I mean, how how often are the candidates talking about climate change on the campaign trail? Are they putting out comprehensive and ambitious plans? But when they're talking about it, how much... Are they talking about it in personal terms? How clear is it that this is something that is absolutely core and central to who they are? And how much are they conveying that this is absolutely a top priority? And again, something that they are rock solid, 100 percent committed to acting on starting on day one in the Oval Office. And so 
I do think as the candidates have been out there more and more talking about these issues, we've seen, you know, more, you know, deeper sort of analysis, appreciation. As they're talking to voters, unfortunately, they have no shortage of really painful examples in voters that they're talking to on the ground about the way that the imp- that climate change is impacting them. So Amy Klobuchar ha- tells a really powerful, you know, really sad story about a farmer, the woman's name is Fran, who th- was on her family farm in Iowa where she, I think, thought she would be for, you know, decades or generations and it had literally been washed away by the the record awful flooding in Iowa early this year. Or Pete Buttigieg talks about, you know, while of course we all believe it's important to protect pristine, beautiful places that are being already really harmed by climate change like the Arctic, there's also in South Bend, Indiana, I think it was either two years in a row or, you know, within a couple of years of each other, there was a 500-year storm and a 1,000-year storm. I mean, literally, that means these are storms that are supposed to happen every 500 years or every 1,000 years. I mean, epic storms dumping torrential amounts of rain. And they're happening every couple of years now. This is our new normal. So I think the fact that candidates are are hearing this from voters and talking about it on the campaign trail, it just, again, it 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 reinforces that this is our new reality, that we have to make major changes and that we have to ensure that our next president is a climate champion. Like the fact that Trump is trying to keep Bahamians out, not giving them temporary protected status or TPS when they are fleeing a climate catastrophe is beyond shameful. I spoke to a reporter last week who had just come back a couple of hours before from the Bahamas, and he said that um, the islands are gone. He said there's nothing left. So the idea that we would not even be helping these people just feels inhumane, even with temporary protective status. Right. No, it's it's beyond sickening. It's shameful. Unfortunately, it's all too consistent with where this president and this administration has been and underscores why, for so many reasons, which are you know integrally related, we have to get rid of him. So I want to talk about the Green New Deal. You know, branding is really important for policies. So if branding is done correctly, then that policy can become kind of the standard bearer for the issue that we measure everything else against. And I feel like that is what's happening with the Green New Deal in climate, that mostly when people start to talk about presidential candidates or any candidates and climate, the first thing they ask is about the Green New Deal. So first of all, can you just explain it to us? The Green New Deal is a 10-year mass mobilization to transform our economy in an inclusive way to run on 100% clean renewable energy. And at the League of Conservation Voters, we are very supportive of the Green New Deal. We give a lot of credit to AOC and to Ed Markey and to the Sunrise Movement for launching it and to really making it something that is so much in the public discussion and discourse right now. And I think that the Green New Deal really makes clear for people both the scale of the problem and also the fact that we need to have solutions that are just as big, just as massive, just as transformative, and that are going to leave nobody behind. And so I think when they put out the Green New Deal, they were pretty clear. This is, you know, uh, these are goals. These are principles. And now send us your great ideas, send us your proposals. And so it's it's exciting to see the discussion that that has prompted. And clearly there's a lot of people all over this country who are very hard at work thinking about how do we make those incredible, exciting goals and principles into a legislative reality. But so given that we need somebody to start on day one 
my understanding when I feel like what I'm hearing from you is that the Green New Deal is a set of principles as opposed to being specific. Do you think it's the right thing for us for us to be asking candidates? Is it the right thing for candidates to be rallying around or should it be a different policy? And the Green New Deal just had excellent branding. Well, I, I think there's clearly a lot of great branding, messaging, a lot of support for the Green New Deal. And as I said, we're very supportive of it. And But I think there are a lot of policies that are going to comprise the Green New Deal. They're just common sense. So things like stopping pipelines that are leaking methane, like patching up those pipelines or investing in infrastructure and in green infrastructure. There's a lot that we can do today, you know, advancing wind and solar, which are, you know, one of some of the fastest growing industries in this country and employing far more people that are, I think it's like triple the number of people who are employed in the fossil fuel industry today. So there's a lot that is we could we could be doing. And one of the things that's so exciting is that we're seeing so much progress in the states right now where the environment and climate progress, clean energy actually do enjoy more bipartisan support. The number of new governors who ran committing to 100 percent clean energy who got elected, there were about nine of them, and then have immediately set to work because, of course, they're concerned about climate change, but also they know that the climate solutions are good for our economy. They create jobs. And they see that this is just win, win, win. So we've seen in states like New Mexico, Governor Lujan Grisham, who got a bill within the first few months to get New Mexico to 100 percent clean energy by 2045. Other governors across the country are very focused on this issue, like Governor Sisolak in Nevada um, or Governor Mills in Maine, to you know touch on a couple different geographic areas. But there's there's been a lot of progress, really historic progress. We are encouraged by what we're seeing at the state level the solution, the policy solutions are clear. It's just about having the political will to enact them. And that's why we need so much change at the federal level. But is action at the state level big enough? I mean, the world is the world. Like, I don't even know if a country solution is big enough. So is a state solution big enough? I would say that state progress is important in and of itself. It also creates upward pressure on the federal government to act. But I think increasingly it's clear that there's no silver bullet, that it's not that the Congress is going to pass a single climate change bill and we can, you know, wipe our hands and move on to the next issue, that we need to do everything we possibly can. We need to transform across the economy, you know, whether it's agriculture, transportation, electricity. So we need to be acting in many ways at the federal level, passing legislation. We need to use for the next president to use all of the executive authority that she or he possibly has. We need to be continuing to make progress in the states. We need to make progress at the local level. We need to continue to make progress in the private sector, which, as you noted, is increasingly focused um, and wants to be part of climate solutions. And then, of course, this is a, a global problem, and we need to have the other countries continue to make the progress that they are so focused on, even even as Trump is clearly embarrassing us on the world stage when it comes to not just climate, but pretty much everything. One place that Democratic candidates really do differ in solutions is, is use of nuclear energy. There actually are pretty different platforms there. What do you think is the right solution on nuclear? You can't really have a conversation about nuclear power without also talking about what to do about the waste. And right now there is no solution for what to do about the waste. And then there's also the fact that this industry has been so heavily subsidized for so long and it's still so expensive. 
So our feeling is that we would prefer to focus on truly clean, renewable energy that has less expense and less downsides associated with it. Now, I want to jump to what Trump has actually done. One of the first things that Trump did as president was to pull the U.S. out of the International Paris Climate Agreement. So can you actually basically explain for us like what that was? Sure. That was... Historic and very exciting. It was nearly 200 countries coming together with a lot of leadership from President Obama himself committing to reduce their carbon emissions over time um, with a recognition that we really need to um, not get above an additional increase of 1.5 degrees to stave off utter catastrophe. And certainly we we need to go much further than that. So even the fact that we are really pleased that the House has passed H.R. 9 is one of their first bills saying Trump can't leave Paris. That's important, but it is truly a first step. And at this point, it's quite obvious that we need to exceed the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. But it was important for what it was. And the fact that Trump pulled out of it was one of the, well, I, would, I was going to say it's one of the more shameful things he's done. But, you know, I mean... <laughs> To rate, is that even to possible? <laughs> right. <laughs> so a lot of the candidates, I think all the candidates talk about rejoining the agreement. I mean, is this even possible? Is it the right thing for them to be doing at this point? It's definitely there's a set of things that the, the, the eventual whomever becomes the next president that they should just do on day one. So certainly rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement with a commitment to go even further than that or to go much further than that is a day one, something that they actually can do. I don't know how widely it's known, but technically we don't, even though Trump is, everything he's doing flies in the face of meeting our commitment under the Paris Climate Agreement to reduce our emissions, technically we don't leave it until right after the 2020 election. So that's a day one priority. But there's also, as bad as it was that Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, There's so many other horrific things that he did, especially over those first few months. And it was especially painful because the Obama administration did more than any other administration to really go on offense to finally start to tackle the climate crisis at the scale that was necessary. Again, sort of as first steps, clearly there's going to be much more needed. And now that's even more compounded. But so the Clean Power Plan, which is the single largest thing our country had ever done, Uh, to cut carbon pollution from coal-burning power plants. Trump has gutted the clean power plan, replaced it um, with, you know, sort of a farce. He went after common-sense methane standards to reduce methane emissions, which actually we were able to work with taxpayer groups who were like, why would we just let this be wasted and ruin the environment at the same time? As we speak, continuing to work to go after the clean car standards, went after the clean water rule, which is vitally important for the clean drinking water that one in three Americans rely on. They're trying to drill in the Arctic refuge. Obama stopped the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, reversed that, trying to build that dirty, dangerous pipeline that would transport the dirtiest oil on the planet. So it just, I think the New York Times recently reported or their latest tally is that Trump has gone after 85 different common sense very popular environmental and public health standards. So it is truly astounding the breadth and depth of these attacks. And I think even Trump himself may have gotten some feedback that, hey, people actually want to breathe clean air. They want to drink clean water. They do cherish these lands and want to have them for their children and their grandchildren. Because he did this really bizarro world press conference over the summer talking about how no administration has ever done more for clean air and clean water. I mean, it was, of course, we know that he never feels bound by the truth or by facts or by science. But even for him, this just seemed like 
you know, just beyond the pale. I mean, you mentioned the clean water rule. It's not that long ago that across party lines, everybody was horrified by the water situation in Flint, Michigan. Exactly. You know, Newark is obviously having major issues with their water. We know that environmental issues are important. And environmental protections are very important to people across this country, cutting across ages, demographics, party lines. But that is especially the case when it comes to clean water and clean drinking water in particular. So I really think Trump is doing this at his peril, but also at the peril for Republican elected officials across the country. This is indefensible. To be clear, there are Republicans at the state level and at the local level who are strongly supportive of environmental protections, like Francis Rooney from Florida, who teamed up with Kathy Castor on bills to protect not just Florida's coast, but the coasts on the Atlantic and the Pacific from offshore drilling. Congressman Fitzpatrick from Philadelphia area, who was leading on a bill to protect the Arctic Refuge. Both of those passed in the House recently, and they had Republican support. So that's that's encouraging. I think we're starting to see in some of the committees that Republicans are shifting their rhetoric. And I think that's just evidence that they see the same polls that we're seeing. They know that voters overwhelmingly support climate solutions. And that's especially the case with young people, including young Republicans. And so they're kind of getting away from like outright climate denial. Now they're more bashing the solutions talking about how we can innovate our way out of this without actually putting forward any real solutions. I feel like two ways Trump and the Trump administration stand out on the issue of climate from other issues and not in a good way, is that it feels like this area more than any others. He'll undo literally anything Obama did just to do the opposite. And secondly, probably related, is that this is an area where Trump has appointed and often the Senate has confirmed, or if they didn't need Senate confirmation, didn't confirm more people from the oil industry, lobbyists and executives, kind of like Fox overseeing the hen house more than any other industry. So, I mean, what have been the real impacts of that? I mean, it is it's disgusting. And you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at Scott Pruitt, who was um, the first EPA administrator during the Trump administration, I should actually, it gives me great delight to say former and disgraced EPA administrator Scott Pruitt, because he got caught up in many of his own scandals and ultimately was actually fired by <laughs> President Trump. So you know, if he fired him, it was really bad. But yes, we have seen people, a revolving door of people who work in the oil and coal industry who were literally in their previous jobs as lobbyists for these fossil fuel companies. Pruitt himself, when he was in Oklahoma, was receiving letters from the oil companies and cu cutting and pasting onto his attorney general letterhead, sending that in to get rid of things like the clean power plan. So it just the fox guarding the hen house is absolutely accurate and all too apt. And it provides a window into why is the Trump administration so focused on letting polluting industries rewrite common sense public health protections? Well, it's clearly to benefit their polluter allies at the expense of our children's health. And that is unacceptable. So given that Trump's positions are basically just reactions to what Obama and his administration had done, how much do you think the Democratic platforms are just reactions to Trump? And how much of the Democratic platforms are actually new initiatives? These are ambitious plans. They're thoughtful. They're creative. People are really talking to experts across lots of different sectors and industries, getting broad buy-in, thinking about what kind of future should we envision? What kind of future can we have that is inclusive, that is going to 
help workers in affected industries be part of a clean energy economy and have good paying jobs that can't be outsourced, that's going to ensure that communities are not suffering from the decades of toxic pollution that they've had in their neighborhoods. So all of that makes me really optimistic, but it also underscores just how high the stakes are. November 3rd, 2020 is the most important election of our lifetime for so many issues, and that is definitely the case when it comes to the environment and especially to the climate crisis. Thank you, Tiernan. This has been such an interesting and illuminating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emily. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Primary Playlist. For more from Tiernan, you can find her on Twitter at T underscore Sittenfeld. That's at T underscore S-I-T-T-E-N-F-E-L-D. For behind-the-scenes photos and extras, follow us on Instagram at Your Primary Playlist. Special thanks to the Wonder Media Network and the whole Your Primary Playlist team for producing this show. Talk to you next time. This is a podcast about the most urgent issue of our time. We're calling it Climate 2020. That's about politics. It's about the election that's coming up. That's the most important election of our lifetime. I'm David Gilbert. I used to work at 60 Minutes, and we created Years of Living Dangerously, a documentary series about climate. I'm Jeff Nesbitt. I run an organization called Climate Nexus. Why we're doing this podcast is to hold these candidates accountable and to make sure that climate is one of the most pressing issues all the way through the 2020 elections. Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that. The politicians have gotten away with not doing anything. The election is about climate change, the great environmental crisis. Time is up. Our house is on fire. They will not get away with it any longer. Climate 2020 premieres September 26th and every Thursday after that.